welcome to the Keen Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. So today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is David Roche. In this episode, David, now living past his terminal cancer prognosis, looks back at his life with honesty and thoughtfulness. That, that was really touching. Now 76, he discussed the suicide of his father when he was five and his subsequent difficulties growing up as a young gay man with a stepfather in Georgia who was determined to make a man of him. However, David, after many struggles, went his own way anyway, and he studied mar- uh, modern dance with the foremost disciples of Martha Graham. That was after getting acquitted from military school after he was in a boxing match and pretended to get his jaw broken. So he had to have it wired together in order to get acquitted. So he ended up, after a couple of formative love relationships with men, in the end setting up a family in Adelaide where he was invited having, uh, to teach at a university there. Finally, after early retirement at 48 from that university in Australia, Adelaide, somehow he found Ashtanga Yoga and he travelled to Mysore when he was 48 for the first time. So after a number of trips to be certified, he was certified by Vitabi Joyce and continued to teach internationally, as well as spending three months a year assisting Saraswati in Mysore until last year. Due to technical difficulties, we did this episode twice. And I have to say, after spending all this time with David, it was really a joy to spend that time uh, with him, casting his eye over his life. And I feel this episode was one of the episodes I really, I really learned the most from. So I hope you enjoy it too. So welcome, David, to the Keenan Yoga podcast, um, our second attempt at this episode. And um, let's hope it goes <laughs> go smoothly this time. Welcome. Nice to have you again. <laughs> And not from any fault of ours, and it was a great interview, but uh, the recording, because I'm in France and David's in Australia, we couldn't, the recording broke up. And so this is our second attempt, so always on the second attempt, it usually actually goes better than the first attempt. Let's take it this time, and this time we're going to structure, um, this is a good idea of a retrospective of David's life, I'm going to structure it through the four traditional stages of um, uh, Indian spiritual life or Vedic spiritual life. Uh, so it says that Bra- Brahmacharya, Grahastra, Vanaprastra, and the Sanyas stage, the four stages. So the first stage of uh, David's life is the Brahmacharya stage, which um, do you want to explain what the Brahmacharya stage is, David? Or do you want me to well, that's, <laughs> explain it? That starts at birth. It is the student stage. It is, starts at right. birth and goes to about 25, 28. Okay. So it's your it's your time of being a student and staying going to the to the guru's house being a student yeah right and how how was that for you because I know I mean the, the first episode I was amazed and I we spoke you know quite length about your background because you have an incredible background with uh, uh, dance and you studied I think not with Martha Graham herself but under the, like the prime disciples of Martha Graham is that correct in New York so. Um, yeah, you want to talk a little bit about your 
background in movement before you came to Ashtanga at the ripe old age of 48, I believe. Yeah, well, that, that you're jumping ahead. That's not Brahmacharya. I know, I know. I'm going ahead of myself. I know, I know. <laughs> Stick to the stages. First stage, Brahmacharya. Okay. You want to know? Yes, that's why we're here. I want to well, know. I was born in the Deep South in Georgia. Uh, five. The address is 519 Charlton Road, Somerville Park, Rome, Georgia. The house is still standing there, uh, and it is a little white clapboard house. It was a white clapboard house, and now it's a little yellow clapboard house. But you can see it on on Google if you if you just Google it, it'll be up there. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, the Brahmacharya stage of my life, uh, I call most for my memory, is my men's stage. It has to do with the men in my life, starting with my father. So up until the age of five, I don't have a lot of memory about it, other than that he, I remember sitting on his lap or remember uh, going into the kitchen at, in the early morning when it was still dark, and he and my mother were talking in whispers, and they were having coffee and donuts, and he would dip his donut in his coffee and give me a little bit of donut. That is one of the, my favorite memories of him. But right. when I was five and a half, almost five and a half, before that, up until that time, he had been having severe depression and had gone through all kinds of problems with depression. And he went out to the garage next to that house and put a shotgun to his chest and shot himself. So that began my first real relationship with a man and the most important man in my life, and that was my father. Within a year and a half, I had another relationship with a man, and that was my stepfather. And my mother, my stepfather had already had a wife, and she had died of an overdose of morphine from having uh, particularly painful periods. So she had died about the same time that my father had died, and they had been, a, they had been couples. They played canasta together. So that my, my mother got together with my stepfather. And, and his, he was a, very different from my, from my father. He was, had been raised by a railroad worker. He was very much a blue-collar worker. He had been made to, to leave uh, school at the age of eight and take care of his younger, younger brothers. So his concern for me, over overriding concern my whole life, was that he needed to make a man out of me. That was his right. full concern. Uh, he thought that I had become a sissy because I had been well, taken care of by my aunts and my mother during this time. And so he this, he took this on as his challenge. And so he, he, he very much wanted to, to totally control my life and did that. And so from the, from that early age, he, we moved several different times that left me kind of having had the, the suicide of my father and then moving to different locations and having new groups of, of people to get no, I never really felt that I fit in. And that was, so those years were really difficult and still remain in my memory as difficult. So we moved to a tiny little town of 1,500 people where everyone knew everybody, like a, a little village. 
And I went to uh, starting there in the fourth grade and went through until the end of high school. And in during those years, that's when I learned I, I was the only one in my class to be in the band. Uh, I played clarinet in the marching band, and then I played oboe in, uh, in, in the symphony band. And then I became my uh, junior year, I became drum major. And that meant I got to wear the tall hat and twirl the baton and march in front of the group. So that was the, that was the beginning of finally becoming somebody other than the sissy that my stepfather wanted to change. But it, I was doing it my way, and that was to become the drum major. Well, my stepfather was still really concerned about me, and I wanted to go away from that house because he and I fought a great deal. And so I wanted to go away to college. And the only college that he would allow me to go to was a military college. So, <laughs> so uh, he and, and the principal of my high school visited that, that high. They took me to visit that military college up in the north of, of Georgia. And I, that's where I was to go to high school. I go to, to college. Yeah. Four-year mm -hmm. ROTC, uh, regular Army training school. And uh, that's where I went. I found that really very difficult. <laughs> uh, it, oh, it's so funny listening to the discrepancy of your, you know, what I know of you now and your background. Hmm. This upbringing is just incredible to, to hear. So yeah. I stayed, I, I was there for a year and, and I did okay. I enjoyed the marching. I enjoyed the playing in the band. I was, played my the dancing part. <laughs> it, no, it was. It was. It was very yeah. much marching is rhythm and, and it's with a lot of yeah, people yeah. and there's pageantry and their flags and that whole bit. I really enjoyed that. That, that worked for me. Uh, I also loved social dancing and we had lots of dances and there was a, there was one girls' dormitory. It's the only co-educational military college in the United States, but there was one girls' dormitory. So we could invite the girls and, and have social dancing, and that was that I enjoyed as well. And that's when I could shine. I could show off. Uh, otherwise, I couldn't very much. But one of the problems for me was that during those years, these were Kennedy years, during those years, uh, just before Kennedy was shot, actually, uh, the he had mandated that every child study physical education every term of their uh, education from the primary school all the way up through high school and university so what we had to do in military school was once one term we would have swimming one term we would have another uh, different kind of, of, of aspect in my second year we had boxing and that really, that threw me because I, I was not a hero in boxing and I, I didn't like right. getting hit. When I got hit as a child, I would cry. I would cry. Yeah. I didn't like being hit. <laughs> it, it hurt. So in the final of the test for the boxing class, I was put with another boy who didn't particularly like boxing. And we finished our rounds to get our grade. And the coach didn't like what he saw, and he decided that he should make a man out of both of us. So he separated us, this other kid, and put us both with the two strongest guys in the class. And so I had to fight this strong guy. He knocked my head, the head 
gear off. He knocked me down. He just pelted me completely. Uh, and I was so totally humiliated. I can't tell you how humiliated it was with the other guys standing around and laughing and jeering that uh, I, 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 I could have crawled under the earth if, if it had been possible. I was that humiliated by it. So I had my jaw slightly hurt uh, from that. And I decided that I would, my jaw needed to be broken. And so I faked holding my jaw in a particular position long enough that I got through the medical and they wired my jaw back together. And that gave me permission from my parents to leave that college. And so that was the only way I could get out was by getting my jaw wired together. Uh, <laughs> There's actually nothing wrong with your jaw. Correct. Correct. So what, did that leave you with any lasting kind of difficulties with your jaw then? No, no. At the time, it was very painful to have wires stuck through the tops of your teeth and wired together and holding your mouth together yeah. with rubber bands. Yeah. But it was worth it to get out of it, to, to have some, <laughs> way, some way to get back from that sense of embarrassment that I yeah. had. And, and, and I didn't have to live in the dorm anymore. I could live in the infirmary during that time. And that's when I was able to leave then and go to the college, which was nearer my home and could be a day, day student. And it was at that college that a group from Texas Women's University came through and, uh, and asked me if I wanted a scholarship to go to Perry Mansfield School in Theater and Dance in Steamboat, Skin, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, for the summer. And I leapt at the chance and and went running home saying, guess what, guess what, I got a scholarship. And my father said, no, you didn't. <laughs> You're not going there. That's a fancy girls school. And finally, my mother said, yes, he is. And so that was my chance. And that I was, I escaped and got on a train in Tallapoosa, Georgia. And it took me three days to get to Colorado. Within 24 hours, I had met my first homosexual lover. And that, that, that was a huge thing for me because this, was, this man was 15 years older and he was the first man that had showed me, that's why I'm calling this is my men's stage. He was the first man that showed me some, some love, some consideration, some uh, tenderness. And... Uh, he was a university professor, and I followed him to Jamestown College in Jamestown, North Dakota, and finished my Bachelor of Arts degree there and, and in art and in biology. And then spent a year there staying with him, and the principal of the, the, the president of the college liked me, so he gave me a job to stay for a year. And I made applications to go to graduate school. And so I went, I was going to go to graduate school in art history. And I went uh, to the, uh, while I was there in, at Indiana University, the first week that I was there, I found the woman that had given me the scholarship to Perry Mansfield School of Theater and Dance was in the dance department at Indiana University. And she said, come mm -hmm. on and do a dance class with us. And so I did. And she said, why don't you get out of uh, art history and come into the physical education program in dance? I took some wrangling to do that, but I did that. And I got, uh, uh, I got 
into that program and, and was appreciated in that program. And in the summers of that program, I got scholarships to go to the American Dance Festival in New London, Connecticut. And that's where I first met the New York teachers that were the students of Martha Graham or teachers for Martha Graham, for Jose Limon, uh, for uh, Alvin Ailey, for various ones for those two different summers. And from there, I made my way. Oh, sorry, that I have to, to, to add one other other thing. At, at yeah. Indiana University, I met my second homosexual lover. Uh, and that the first one lasted four years. The second one lasted four years. And we went to New York together. He was made dean of students at Uppsala College in East Orange, New Jersey. And I went into New York to dance. And so we, we had family. And... Uh, that was the beginning of my training. That's where uh, in in professional dance in New York, and I was attending ballet classes as well as modern dance classes. And this is where I, when I went to the Martha Graham Studio and was a scholarship student there, and then eventually danced with the modern the, the Graham Apprenticeship Company and with Bertram Ross and Mary Hinkson and some of those people during that time of the late sixties. I was given again a visitation by the lady from Perry Mansfield and from uh, from Indiana University. She now was teaching in Michigan, and she asked me to come there and teach for a term. So I went there and taught that term, was visited by uh, a woman from Florida State University who came there to work in that department for just a couple of weeks. And she suggested that they would like me at Florida State University to be there for a year. So this is what I, I said, okay, I will go there for a year. Uh, and meanwhile, I had gone back and forth to dance, to both dance in New York and continue with the companies that I was working with, and also to work at Bergdorf Goodman, which was a, a very fancy couture shop on the top of Fifth Avenue. Okay, so we're up now to... Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how old are you now? Uh-huh. Well, we're, we're uh, American Dance Festival is uh, is beginning to get to the end of the Brahmacharya phase. Okay. Okay. So now we're getting into from there. Uh, let me see. I, I wrote it all down so that I can keep it all straight. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think. I think Vanaprastha stage is starting with right. the household right. stage, right? right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now we're we're in in and no, we're not starting. We're starting Grahasta, right? Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Grahasta. The, the Grahasta. household stage. Yeah. We're in Grahasta yeah. now, yeah. and this yeah. is my women's phase. <laughs> this is when I get I, I get the women in in my life and work mostly with women in my life, and uh, they become the more important for me. Uh, so. I taught it, as I say, I taught at Eastern Michigan, and then I went to Florida State. And I was at Florida State then. I was supposed to stay a year. I stayed 10 years. And during that time, uh, I met uh, Francine, who became, who also used the name of Simi. And I had decided that I had had enough of homosexual life, that I wanted to have a family. And that being a parent and being a father was was extremely important to me, something that I wanted to do, and I thought I could do better than my fathers had done. And Simi was a beautiful, 
caring, extremely uh, tender woman uh, and a wonderful dancer, very charismatic dancer, and we got along beautifully. And so in 1976, uh, we married, and within three, we had a bit of preparation beforehand, but within three months, Youngblood was born. And so that begins my householder stage in, in actuality, the Grohasta stage. Uh, so I was at Florida State University then from, uh, from the early 70s in through the, uh, into 1981 when I was invited to, uh, to Australia uh, in 1981 to come and help start the first degree course in modern dance at the university there. And right. again, I was to come for a year, and I stayed for the last, well, I stayed until I retired from there in 1986, so about 15 years. Right. Okay. And you're still there now in Australia, aren't you? I'm still in Australia, but I left yeah, university right. in 1996, and that begins uh, the Vanaprastha stage. Mm -hmm. Okay. Carry on. Okay. In the Vanaprastha stage, uh, up, but there, there's some lead up into the Vanaprastha stage in terms of the yoga, though. Uh, and I wanted to tell, I wanted to to mention the there. There are more stages that don't actually fit into the to the the stages. These are the people that I studied with. I last in in terms of yoga, going all the way back. Lilas Folan, Osho Meditations. Boki Yoga, Japan, Japan, Shandor Remite, Iyengar, Patavi Joyce, Tim Miller, Joyce Family, Dharma Mitra, Sharat and Simi Saraswati. All of those people fit into this, this stage that you are asking me about, inter, or this, this, this progression in the life of dance and yoga. So by 1996, I had left... I had been made redundant from the university. They were they had closed the department and moved it to another university. I had been made redundant. I had seen Patabi Joyce in Hawaii in 1992. I had learned Richard Freeman's videotape to learn the the first series of of uh, Ashtanga Yoga, and uh, I went to Mysore. Prior to going to Mysore, I went by way of Pune and to study with the Iyengars. Since I had, mm -hmm. and, and prior to that, it was a study with Shandor. So, uh, yeah, I'm getting all confused now in terms of how to keep all of this straight for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot going on. You have I mean, to you ask questions because it, it, it's too complicated for ask, ask me whatever you want to ask. All right. Okay. So, that, well, that, I, I just actually, I'm quite enjoying just listening. Um, I'm happy for you to carry on. And just to contextualize this, David, you're 78 now, is that right? I'm 76. I'll be 77 in November. 76. Right. So, you know, it's a retrospective of David's life. And you st and one particular unique thing about David is you started yoga, as we mentioned at the start, quite later. You came upon Mysore. You came to Mysore at 48? Right? At 48. Or you started Ashtanga at 48. 48, but, right. But prior to that, that was that. prior to all that was Shandor. Shandor was hugely uh, Chandler is a huge influence on many people and they were a very uh, found guest on this podcast as well. 
Um, so please, if you haven't listened to Shandor's podcast and you get some background story in Shandor, and he is an incredible, incredible uh, yoga teacher and human being. But it was the Japanese Oki Yoga that told me about Shandor, who was in my hometown, oh, right. and I didn't know that he was here. So that 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 takes me back to about the beginning of Oki Yoga, Shandor, now Patabi Joyce. Okay, now we're there. Okay, right. Well, actually, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the Oki Yoga, but we haven't got time to cover everything. Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. So let's just start. And I remember in the last podcast, you said some interesting things about how you found Mysore at the start and that you found it was kind of a supportive club when you joined it mm -hmm. and you found it was lesser so as time went on. Do you want to just you know, talk a little bit about your first memories of Mysore, how it felt, how the other teachers were with each other and how... Yeah, your relationship with, with Patabi Joyce and learning the sequence older at that age, you know, because you didn't come to it. You know, you were one of the older people in the group, I'm sure. Yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I felt from the from meeting Patabi Joyce and the group that were that is that had followed him, uh, his entourage that had followed him across Europe and, and on to Canadas and then finally into Hawaii, that was a really illustrious group of people that were with him and had been studying with him off and on for a long time. Uh, and so I, I found them very caring and very approachable, a very wonderful group of people to be around. I felt like an outsider because I was just coming into it. But certainly uh, Tim Miller was, was extremely uh, important to me in terms of being loquacious and equal to, you know, easy to talk with. So I invited him to come to, uh, to uh, Australia to teach. And he suggested that I go to the Iyengar that I had been in, on a waiting list for. Uh, I went there, and that's when I went down from Iyengar to the Mysore. And when I arrived at Mysore, it was a group of no more than 30 people, all of, all of us living in the Carvery Emporium, because that's where Guruji said to live. Guruji would stand at his right. front door and point down to the bank, down his bank, Guruji's bank, and say, you go there, change money, you come back 4.30 tomorrow morning. So I did that. Amma had met me at the door and she'd given me a cup of coffee and that was my introduction to the two of them. Uh, and again, I found people very welcoming, uh, mm -hmm. uh, particularly two nurses from the UK that we played Scrabble together. I was a, I was still very timid. And so instead of living in the Carvery Emporium, I lived in the Metropole for that first three months. Uh, and and what else? I think we mentioned before, yeah, that, the, that it was a kind of supportive group because latterly, I think, some of our experiences, that it has become more fractured. And at that time, you felt that the people that each person was quite supportive to one another you know well that's because you each person had their own place to stay i mean if you weren't in your spot at 4 30 in the morning and you had been there, right okay Guruji would say where's david or, or or where is whoever and and you were expected to be there and then if if it was your turn to pay money he say leaving tomorrow meaning that it's time for you to pay again if you're going to stay again uh so it was okay. it was they knew he knew you by heart you were in his book uh and he would you would go to his office in the afternoon pay your money and he would count it and it was all very personal from guruji on down you felt like you were in someone's home studying with that man and you were a part of his tribe part of his children and that 
he was the same age that my father would have been had he lived. So it was very important for me to have this relationship with this older man now, uh, who was very much a, a, a father to me. I wanted him to like and he, he learned my name, and I felt liked if he learned my name and asked where I was if I wasn't there. So, yeah, it was, it was important to me. And how do you feel it changed over the years from your early days to later? And what point did it change? It, it changed when, the, when Ashtanga Yoga became a, a, a buzzword in New York. And so many people began of, of uh, celebrity status began to be known, and they were advertising that they were doing this uh, this form of yoga and who this man was and how they were doing it. And they were showing up on shows like Oprah and talking about it. And, uh, and that made other people want to study it. Uh, people were, Guruji was telling those of us in, in his class to go ahead and teach. There was no uh, system of teaching. There was no signing a letter. There were no certificates. If, he said, if you ask him, what, what do you want me to do, Guruji? How can I serve you? He, for me, he said, you teach. And so that's what I, I, I was doing. Uh, but uh, it, it, was, it was much, as it got, as more people started to come, as it became more popular, and there were more people, he was then, instead of teaching 30 people, he was teaching 60 people, he was teaching 90 people. And he would be teaching from 4.30 in the morning until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it was wearing him out, he and Sheriff together. It was, it was really doing him in. And uh, it was around this time uh, that Amma died. And that really threw, that, that, that was totally, uh, he was totally grief-stricken. And, and it changed everything when that happened. So... Outside. Yeah, she 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 died in 1997. Mm. How did everything change? What was what was changed? He was much more distant. Uh, he would sit right. in his little front room by himself in the afternoon and read the paper. And and gradually, people he would allow you to come in if you were coming to pay your money. Then you could sit and talk with him. And that became more people coming to sit and talk with him. And that became what was known as conference as it grew over several years until the room was so crowded that people were standing on top of one another to get in to listen to Guruji talk. And you could ask him all kinds of questions. Uh, oftentimes, the new arrivals would ask the same questions that the old arrivals had already asked, and people would throw their eye, look up uh, eyeballs and think, "Oh, not that question again." But but he would be very patient and and answer the questions. And what about when he died? And um, when was when did he die? Two thousand and two thousand and nine. Seven. Two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Yeah. Okay. And you say things changed again at that point. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. But let's get to that later, because that, that's a much thing. Oh, um, skipping a stage. OK. I want to talk about something else. And that is uh, All right. what happened then with Patavi Joyce, simultaneous to with Patavi Joyce, when he said, you teach. Then I came home and thought, how am I going to teach? Uh, Simi had said, oh, I want to do a yoga shala here in, in, in Adelaide. 
And I said, only if you can, if, if I'm the boss and we do it the way that Gruji told, tells me to do it. And, and that did and did not work. And so I decided that I would go on the road. And that's when I, I devised something called Have Yoga, Will Travel. And that became my way of using what I had learned both in the dance and in the yoga to take forward in terms of teaching. It goes all the way back to my Southern Baptist upbringing in Georgia. And there is an, a Matthew quotation that says, Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always until the end of the earth. Well, that was my directive in terms of teaching yoga. I thought it, it was good enough for Christ. It's good enough for yoga. I believe that the, the body was this, this golden temple that we all have, and that's what I wanted to do. And, and people started asking me to teach. The first class that I, the first workshop that I did uh, was first in Japan, and then the next one was in France, and word of mouth got around, and, and I started teaching. And, and still, there was no certification gone. That came and didn't come until 2002, 2001 and 2002. It was starting out and just going word of mouth. So you were teaching with Simi for a while in Adelaide, and then you did you split up then, or you were still together at that point? We were still with together, but I was traveling. Right. I was traveling. Okay. She was based. Okay. And young dad must home. have been quite, quite a young. Right. Well, he had just finished at that time. He had just finished his university, and he was, he was uh, in advertising, and he had done a Bachelor of Arts in anthropology, and he had decided also that he wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And so he went to New York to and did a master's degree in acting. <laughs> I didn't know that. Right. Yeah, he's quite funny. I, I never knew that about him. No. That's when I introduced him to study with Eddie when he was in New York. And he became the student right. of Eddie. Yeah. Okay. And the distributor of Namarupa. So to go back to the story, you're... You're traveling at this time and you're having success in the workshops on the front. And I think you came to, to London as well and you taught at uh, Diorama, the place where I started teach, the Diorama teaching. Diorama And um, you, you taught at Diorama. Okay. Um, right. How did that, tra what, what happened next? I just kept traveling. I would go back to, to Adelaide and, and uh, plan another trip. Plan another trip. Okay. Teach if if Simi wanted me to teach in the shallow, she was keeping the shallow going. I would go in and teach there for a while, and then I would go on another trip. Right. And you were going back to Mysore up until what point? Because I know latterly you you've been going back every year to study with Saraswati. That's right. Well, I had been going all the, up until Guruji died. I had been going every year from, right. from nineteen ninety five until that point. I had been going every year, sometimes for three months, sometimes. Once or twice for six months, uh, but I would go and 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 love being there. Uh, that was that was my second home. I felt very. I called it my pop, my psychological observation place. I I could really be on my own and really get into the yoga and in reading and and into studying and being with other people of like mind, and that was very nourishing to me. Yeah. 
And then what changed after the point of Patavi Joyce passing away? Then dramatically, there was such a political upheaval in the whole Ashtanga. Nobody knew what was happening. Uh, Lino was going one way. Sharat was wanting to go another way. Sharat was saying that the older teachers didn't know how to teach and, and people were being offended and, and felt that, mm. that things were not really well, that they were not well among the tribe. People were getting uh, really upset uh, with what was going on. So people kind of pulled off on their own uh, and made their own workshops or confluences of groups of uh, particular teachers that wanted to teach together. It was a kind of pulling into uh, a different kind of tribal situation. Um, I think the way you described it last time it really hit a note to me and I kind of because I think when we approached it I mean I kind of I think I came there 2007 so really the last years of Patavi Joyce's life and you know so I didn't really get a full understanding of how it was previously but I didn't you know it's always been a kind of fra slightly fractious and, and fractured kind of community aspect there so I didn't realize that there was a more cohesive story previous to previous to that time which um it's interesting that you point out that it was much more supportive in the early days, right? You felt quite supported by the other members, and you know, um, whereas well, latterly there's a lot more sense of competition, I suppose. Well, um, as as when I, when when Patabi Joyce made the certifications, and people were saying he he was asking people to pay for the certification, but also he was naming them as who would be certified. Uh, and, and some people were asking to be certified. Some people, he just gave them, you are certified. And those were people like Tim and, and Richard and people that had been doing it for a long time. Others were asking to be certified. And for whatever reason, he told me I was certified. I didn't ask for it. But that certification gave you a certain upness in terms of being able to, to uh, travel around and teach workshops. It gave you a credential that other people didn't have. And when I was given that and at that time in 2001 and 2002, there were only about 26 people that were certified, totally. By the time, yeah. by 2009, well, even later, because about 2011, there were several hundred people that had been certified uh, and, and authorized. And all that whole process uh, of how many times you had to come to be before you could be certified? All of that, that uh, regulation uh, was was added when it was certainly wasn't mm, there mm. in the beginning. Yeah, I suppose I wanted you to speak that out again because you know, for someone coming later, even me, and I came quite a while back. It you know, it it wasn't clear that there was a different story before that, which is somehow nice to hear that and. What was your break with it? I mean, because you have a story, and I suppose I, suppose I want to hear, I want you to tell it again about how you ended up kind of breaking with, with finally with Chirac and, and going over to Saraswati. In 2007, my, uh, I, have, I, have, I want to give two, or two, two years before this. In 2007, my daughter, Inanna, was married. She was born just as we came to Australia. She was married, and in 2008, my first granddaughter was married, uh, was, was born, uh, Lalita. And so while I was doing my 
end-of-year exams is when Patabi Joyce died. And I did not go back for the funeral. And that set up a, a, a bad vibration, so I understood by word of mouth, through, the, through Sherratt in particular, that I hadn't shown up for the, for the cremation. Uh, so after that was when Patabi Joyce died. Ten, year, ten days after Patabi Joyce died, Simi left and we separated. So I was in a, a heap. Uh, I, I saw a card reader and she said, get out of town. You need to get away from this. And so I, I went out to teach and several people offered me teaching jobs. And I stopped on the way in Mysore to study with Sherrod because I wanted to, to renew the the good feelings rather than him being upset with me over not coming to the cremation. So he said, why are you here? And I said, I came to support you, Sherrod. Uh, and and because it, it was that political time that was going on then. Uh, so he signed me up and I started classes. When he started teaching his very fast guided uh, primary classes and intermediate class, if particularly primary, I went to him and I said, Sherrod, my 65-year-old body is having trouble staying up with your the speed with which you were teaching this, and I have been sick. I, I'm kind of in a, a bad place right now. I don't think I can handle it. He said, you come. I said, okay, okay, okay. So there was one weekend where there were two, a moon day and a non, and a, and a whatever, a two-lid classes together. He had previously said, if you, those who don't come to, uh, to uh, lead class, 2,000 rupees fine. And so I walked in that day. I did not go to the classes. I walked in uh, the day after those two lead classes. And when he said, no, once more you come, I went into a, a group of 60 people that I had never met in my life. I was supposed to be a certified teacher. And I walked in and went to my, my place and he said, David, four rupees fine, 4,000 rupees fine. And I was very embarrassed because he had called attention to mm. me and he had called it in a negative way to me. And I felt really embarrassed like I did when my jaw was broken. So I, I waited until he walked over to me to give me an adjustment. I said, I kind of whispered to him. I said, Sherrod, I, I mean no disrespect for you, but I simply can't keep up with your classes. And he said, I don't care. You come in a kind of gruff voice. And I, that made me decide that that was my end of my relationship with Sherrod. I had thought up until that time when he came to Australia, all those different things that we did together had been really good. And I thought of, I mm. thought of him in the, as, as, a, as the second to Guruji and the one who gave me many of my postures. But I felt like he had, had taken on a different robe, a different mantle, in his role that, uh, and it was not the same share that I had been dealing with before. And I didn't mm. want to be embarrassed mm. by him. So mm. Uh, mm. at that same, that same year, I was at the Alliance Francaise after going, after being in Mysore. And I got a call from Eddie Stern saying the, the uh, Joyce yoga people in Sydney, the, the, the new shallow that was being set up in Sydney, want teachers. Can you go there and teach? And I said, sure. 
That was 2010. So I went there to teach. They asked me to stay. I stayed there 10, 2010, 11, and 12. In 12, Saraswati came to, to teach. And, and I asked her if she wanted me to adjust for it. Really, And she said, no. And I said, okay, fine, no problem. Uh, and then later on, she said, okay, you, you adjust. And then she asked me, she said, are you sick? And I said, I have not been well. Yes. She said, you come to my mm. store and you study with me. And I said, okay. That was 2013. So in 2013, I went to Mysore and she kind of took me under her wing and she went very slowly with me. I went back to primary. I was doing the best primary that I possibly could do. Uh, and she invited me to share its open house. She invited me for all sorts of different things that really treated me the same way Guruji had treated me. And I felt back, at least under her good graces, a part of the family. And then she asked mm. me to adjust in her class. And that really thrilled me to bits because it, it gave me, I didn't have to travel anymore uh, with Have Yoga With Travel. I could go each summer and, and work there and she wanted me to work and teach for her. And she would go, she would go on a tour and leave me there to handle the big shala and teach uh, the, the, the big classes. And that was really, uh, I, I, I loved that. that. That made me feel good. So you were employed by her. You, she was paying. Oh you. no, 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 never. No, no, no. I didn't think you so. You just gave me the honor of teaching. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, class. yeah, right. Yeah, or the honor I, of, I of, of of adjusting. No, yeah. no pay. No, no, no. <laughs> don't don't talk about money with them. But that, um, I did that up until right. 2019, two years ago, and then came home and right, was locked right, down. Right. Yeah. So where are we? Um, Surely we've passed, we've gone to the third stage or the fourth. And it's very interesting that you, I mean, so many reflections and you're such an evocative storyteller. And, you know, with this upbringing, I never realized in the last uh, interview that, that this occurred at all because I was asking all these questions about yoga. But it seems to be that so much of what comes to mind is that so much of one's life is kind of found founded inevitably on those, you know, on the early years, right? And when you talk about, you know, this kind of, being called a sissy in the in the sense of kind of humiliation that you had in the early years and the timidity that you had. Do you feel that you've gone through that or do you feel that it stayed with you? And this is a kind of outside the box question, I suppose. That's where the yoga fits in. That's where the yoga ties it all together. That's where the yoga, when I started doing Ashtanga yoga, I thought, I can do this. This is something that I can do and I can be good at it because it has the steps to it. It has everything that I need. It has the rhythm. It has something that I'm used to and I can be good at this. I wanted to be good at something in my life and, and not being uh, dependent on anybody for that, like a university or a, a, a whatever, a school. And, and it really all of those influences from my life that had made me feel insecure or whatever. I felt secure. And Guruji liked me and I could teach and people are asking me to teach. I mean, that was, that was the, it couldn't get any better than that. It was just the best. And then Guruji died. And then Guruji died and it all kind of folded in on itself. And so then I, I limped along from that point on doing the best I could, but not having the same spirit that I had when it was a tribe and it was all together and he was the leader. Right. 
And then the, the next stage in the Vanaprastha stage, or, or what stage would you say you met Saraswati? What, what stage of your life was that? Uh, she was. She didn't start. In, in my experience, she didn't start uh, uh, adjusting in the classes until Guruji had after two thousand and six. Guruji stubbed his toe in 2006. It became septic. He, we almost died. he almost died. He was very ill. He would sit up in his chair. He would fall asleep while he was calling a guided class. It was really a, a difficult situation for Sharat to have to pitch in and keep things going. But uh, that's when the whole family pitched in and started teaching. Even Sharat's wife was teaching and adjusting because 300 people were showing up and there were just not enough heads. And up until that yeah. point, yeah. up until that point, it, the 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 understanding that I had always heard is no, no one teaches in this place but the family and Tim Miller. Tim had somehow <laughs> lived with the family and had become endeared to the family and had a special certificate from Patabi Joyce, and so people, the only people that could adjust uh, was were the family and Tim Miller. <laughs> and I did know somehow he lived with the family. I don't know how he ended up in that position, but I, he had to take the he had to take his food in another room. I remember he had to eat. They they give him his his meal in his bedroom or something like that. I remember that. Right. Um, so I suppose what I'm kind of wrangling around is that the last stage of your life, which is is it going back to women again? Because it's I like the way you framed it as a, you know the first stage being men, the second stage being women. Can you what about the other two stages? Do they fall in those polarities as well? The huge stage was was the householder being with my children and get, and getting them from zero to uh, universities and through and, and working for them in their what, whatever they wanted to do with their, their lives and really into that. They were very self-directed people. Uh, this stage now is called solitude. I am on my own. Uh, Simi has Simi's around. She has her own house down at the beach. I see her maybe once a week. I'm very grateful now to have Youngblood living me with only 20, 20 minutes walk away from me. And he's been extra gracious since this COVID thing hit to be, he calls me every night. I mean, that has really, really, really wonderful. But in terms of teaching or doing my practice with other people or being a part of any yoga tribe or whatever, I'm here in this house. And that is the sannyasi time for me to read books, to do my, I go on my walks, I sit in the arboretum of the Adelaide Botanical Gardens and go and try to recite as many of the chants that I can remember. Uh, I can do the Gayatri sitting there in the, the, as the sun is rising. Those are the kind of things that bring me a great deal of, of, of sustenance, as it were. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and and reading, once I got this prognosis of I had three months to live, I had a great deal of, uh, of communication from friends and relatives uh, of their concern about that. And some were sending me books on dying, uh, one by uh, by Ram Dass and another by Thich Nhat Hanh. Those have been really comforting. But now that I've reached kind of soul, what they call smoldering stage, of this disease. I don't know what's going to happen, but I think I'm prepared now uh, 
for the solid unit. Well, smoldering. Yeah, smoldering multiple myeloma. It means that it's at a kind of static stage. It's not getting any better or it's not getting any worse. Right, because we, as we were talking before, you've already exceeded your prognosis now. So you're... Yep. Extra time. <laughs> from here on, it's great. Yeah. You're, going, you're going, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you talk about reading these books, and I mean, this is, you know, the retrospective of your life has kind of been fascinating. But what are your what are your thoughts about the future? Do you have any thoughts about the future? Or? I'm taking it a day at a time because of the prognosis, because of the of the disease. I mean, it. It, it, it's kind of comical to me to try to get up and down off the floor. Want this this man who had been a an ashtangi and a, a certified ashtangi, and I, <laughs> I have to go through about six different moves to get myself up off of the floor because of the difficulty in my joints to do that. Uh, and I have to laugh because it's just this old man <laughs> that. that <laughs> And Groot used to say, you know, you can do this until you die. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered why Guruji stopped doing the practice. And that was they said it was because his son, as his tapas, because of his son's death. I think it was because it was just too bloody hard. And he didn't want to do it anymore. And, and, and I understand <laughs> that. And I did it until I was six, uh, 70. And now it's too bloody hard. <laughs> is pretty good. Seventy is pretty good. So now you're just kind of walking and, and maintenance, and you're doing you're doing some yoga. As I understand, you're doing some yoga. So I do five kilometers a day on my little phone. I I measure it, and I do it a, a good clip, my New York style clip, uh, and I do uh, some some exercises. I lie on the floor. I lie with my legs up the wall. I lie with my legs over benches. I I can get into lotus still. Uh, it's just what I can do. You do what you can do, not what you want to do, but what you can do. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And I do the um, pranayama. And, I do pranayama while right. I'm walking. I do pranayama while I'm sitting in the park. Uh, I don't have to sit in lotus and do it. I can do it sitting on a bench. It, it, it that all that helps. Sorry, it's an impertinent question, but maybe let's let's uh, go a bit deeper and ask you about reflections. Reflections on what you've told me. Reflections on your life. And anything particular that comes to mind about? Are you happy with everything you did, or would you have said you would have done something different? Or, I mean, we talked last time. You said your you know your your greatest achievement was the family, which is completely understandable. Um, what else outside that was was what else comes to mind when you look back on your life? I, if you ask, depending on the day that you ask me, I would say, yeah, I'm sure. I would say, I would never say that I had a happy life. I would never say that it was uh, filled with happiness because there were there was too much death, there was too much pain, there was too much separation, there were too many difficult things in it. But it has these wonderful moments that I can reflect on that uh, that that mean a great deal to me. And and as I said before, that those those reflection moments have to do with have yoga will travel, have to do with my marriage, have to do with my children. They're not so much much yoga. They have to do with what go, has gone on in my life that has enriched my life with with my family. 
Mm-hmm. And reflections on death, fear. Are you, are you are you interested in the metaphysical view of yoga? I'm, I mean, how much do you subscribe to? I have to I've gone. I have done a study of the Bhagavad Gita uh, uh, at the twice through uh, with. Uh, Swami Martananda, uh, I have I've learned a great deal from that. I have learned a great deal from reading Buddhist text. I'm not concerned so much about dying. I think it's just going to be it's another experience that I'm, I'm happy to go to. Uh, but for the very reasons that I just told you of solitude and of not thinking back and just thinking, oh, I wish I could have. Don't go back and do that. I wish I could go back and do that. A happiness, happiness. No, I'm ready for the next experience. And that has been what my whole life has been, is just keep walking forward, take the next step forward, and and follow your nose. Just keep going and see what happens. Yeah. I think ever since that last interview, I've been thinking on that, and I think you said something on the last interview that we didn't manage to to publish and so like you're excited so excited by the next the next the next experience yeah definitely Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about how we have how we are materialized at a particular point of time and then we're dematerialized and then perhaps we will be materialized in another way or not it just depends on what how how things are materialized when it is their time and I I feel like all that is not as out of my control. I'll just follow. I don't know what happened before I was born. I don't know what will happen after I'm born, after I die. It doesn't really concern me. Uh, I'm not in control of it. Hmm. Did you feel, I mean, just as a parting kind of thought and question, uh, the issues around your early upbringing are really fascinating. And do you feel like you ever resolved those issues with the, with the man and with, with men? You said you had a really nurturing experience with Batavi Joyce that you appreciated a lot, and those seemed like rich years for you. Uh, but you had a lot of a really, really suffering in your early years, which, you know, to degrees like you know around men and manhood, I can I can relate to as well. I adore men. Just being with men who are at ease with being men, who are at ease with being manly, and and do not need to uh, to to practice on me or to compete with me or to put me down or to that that kind of alpha male, beta male thing that happens in most situations, particularly if women are around, when there's the competition that, that ultimately goes on to, to show off. And when I can be around men who are, are uh, gay sensitive, men who are bisexual men who are masculine and heterosexual but are open to to other people in life i love being around men uh and talking and and exchanging with them in an open way uh what i can't be around are are the macho men it just makes me uncomfortable i feel like i have to compete and and i don't want to do that did you, I can't really imagine you competing. Did you used to compete? Well, of course. <laughs> I could get my story, I could tell my stories about my children and about, I could mention within the first 30 seconds, I could mention my wife and family. 
I mean, if, if you tell people you're a dancer and you tell people you are uh, you have been a dancer and you teach dance, I mean, you need to back it up. But I have a wife and child. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> okay. Ultimately, okay. You're, you're you're a faggot, and and that, that you 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 throw up the the blinds and protect yourself from that in order to be able to compete to hold up your your what your uh, your Mm. your worth <laughs> that you've decided. Mm, mm, yeah. So you mm. you compete on their level. If you feel that that's the level that's coming on, then you compete on their level. And then when you don't have to compete, it's so wonderful just to sit and be with people that, that don't require that. Men and women. I think I remember like trying to end the interview on the last time asking you like any final reflections and you said, well, I, I, I prefer being asked questions <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you are very straightforward. I mean, I think it's a Southern thing as well, you know, that Southern kind of like the straightforwardness. I have a friend like I mean, Larry Hobbs, um, who's another Southern man from, I think he's from South Carolina. He's got the similar kind of straightforwardness to you. Um, but uh, so I'm st instead I'm going to end on, just asking you what your kind of happy pleasures you mentioned in the daytime now just the enjoyment just the, just the enjoyment of being alive and in, in the arboreum reading the uh reading the yoga philosophy uh doing the pranayamas chanting the mantras that you remember you know what, what other things you know if we just i think just my, give greatest, joy to be my greatest joy is what we just did and that is for me to speak my truth without having to tell to to uh to to uh, isolate part of it. For my whole life, I have had to tell two stories. The story before, after my marriage, before kids, after kids, and, and to, to abbreviate, to, uh, discount. And, and that, that becomes an obsession. Who have you told what? How do you keep it? And, and generally, you wind up butching everything up inside to be able to open up and say to you what I've said tonight. Has been uh, is is wonderful. Uh, whoever listens to it, it doesn't matter to me. But it is my truth. It is what I have gone through, and it has been an up and down. But uh, it, it's it's been an up and down life. <laughs> yeah, I think. Oh, I I, I, I shan't take more of the time. Um, but uh, it's been a wonderful episode. I mean, and just profound and really. Um, yeah, and a much better one than last time, I think. And just, just I'm, I'm lost for words, really. And I think, yeah, I, I, I really, I really appreciate you sharing this with with us. And uh, and I know it will be a very much uh, appreciated episode generally by the listeners. Um, so, you know, thanks so much for coming on. And um, and I think it's really great. Like, may I finally say that you've given a life that is honest and to, and to say that it, well, it has moments of profound happiness, but there's been a lot of suffering there as well, you know, which is, I think an important thing for people to hear from someone, you know, of your age and now, you know, kind of facing the last, last years of your life that, you know, that, that you know, that life is varied, that it's all things, you know, that it's not just one great, you know, ah, looking back, everything was wonderful. People will often say that, right? Like, I wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> they say, well, you know, yeah. well, sure, you know, I mean, like, you're, you're, <laughs> your life's your life, right? So, I mean, nevertheless, you know, it's, yeah. Well, thank so, you for giving me this, the, the chance, the second chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a second chance now. You, you, you're, 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 uh, 
past your prognosis. Let's let's see if we get a third one in. And if you're around, if you're around in six months, let's have another chat. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you can say more, right? Well, thanks, thanks, David. Thank you.